everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics chronologically. Today, we're going to be reviewing Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine, number three. We'll talk about that series from the early 2000s in a little while. It is a celebration of the Stan and Jack run on the original 100 issues plus of Fantastic Four. And it was a book that many people worked on, including our featured guest for today, Mr. Gordon Purcell, who I am so excited to meet. I've been a fan of his pencils for a long time. I'm also thrilled to be joined by returning co-hosts Rob Salerno and Daryl Lawrence. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, as we're doing so, let us know your gender pronouns if you'd like, uh, where we might know you from, and our question for today, because we have the thing obsessed with getting some saltwater taffy in Atlantic City, what are the candies that you can't turn down? Is there anything that, uh, that like, the bowl is there in front of you and you're going to eat the whole thing? Uh, as we're doing introductions, let's begin with Gordon and then uh, Daryl and then Rob. Okay, I'm uh, Gordon Purcell. Uh... I live in Minnesota. Uh, I've been working in comics since the late 80s, uh, penciling and inking. And I have uh, worked for DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Tops, IDW, pretty much everybody at some point. Um, and uh, the one candy I like is very obscure. It's called Chuckles, which is a gel candy. Uh, they do make it here in Minnesota, but they come in uh, lime, cherry, orange, lemon, and licorice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I had to order it from Amazon because it is hard to find. And what was your other question? Uh, where do people know you from? What are what are some of the things you might be most known for? I'm probably best known for drawing Star Trek. I've drawn most of the crews on Star Trek from Pike to Voyager. Then I've also drawn X-Files, Silver Sable, Avengers, uh, uh, this FF, Justice League, uh, Flair, Black Enchantress, just a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, you've got a long list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Man, I guess uh, Daryl's going to talk about that someday. Um, I've just drawn a lot. You know, Mad Dog was brought up recently. Uh, so I drew a lot at different times, you know, like I did uh, Young Indiana Jones. <laughs> and, uh, so I did a lot of licensing stuff, Elvira, things like that. And then a lot of superhero stuff like War of the Gods and Flash and stuff like that. So it's kind of a long, weird, certainly career. <laughs> We're going to get to know you and your uh, your story a little bit more today, but I just want to say I'm a huge fan. I have a wall of commissioned art. Gordon, I'll show you uh, a little bit later. Often when I have artists on the show, I'll have them draw a piece. And Gordon's doing a piece of Craven the Hunter for me, who we love. I can't wait. Uh, when I know when you have time, of course. There's always a lot. I've had a lot of deadlines. Actually, the first commission I ever had, Jim Engel drew me as Craven. So Craven <laughs> is a character I like. We are. He was drawing my face, and I thought, well, I want someone who doesn't have a mask. We've given Craven, we've given Craven a lot of love on my show. I uh for for long-term listeners, I uh I used to be a Marvel Comics handbook writer, and in the back of one of the handbooks, there's an a uh, profile of me, and the artist drew me as like uh, you guys know the famous uh, Superman opening a shirt and it's Clark Kent underneath. They did that for me, but it, except I'm Captain America. So if you ever find that weird random profile of me, that's uh, my face on uh, kind of Captain America's body. Uh, it's just like what Peter Sanderson used to do. 
Yes, uh-huh. mm-hmm. except Mike Ficarra is the one that drew it. And we're actually having Peter on the show uh, in a few weeks. I'm very excited to say hi. I will. I uh, talk to him on Facebook a lot. He's a great guy. Uh, let's go over to Daryl next. Hey, everyone. I'm Daryl Lawrence. You may know me from um, the X Factor Files podcast. My pronouns are he, him. And I think I'm very specific when it comes to jelly beans. I like jelly bellies, but certain flavors. So when I find a grocery store where you can buy it by the pound and select your own flavor, I'm going for the red apple, pear, and tutti frutti. And I am filling up a sack. And then it's always way heavier than I think it will be. Um, But then I'm in heaven with those three flavors for a while. Um, And I will admit, I'm I'm a Gordon Purcell super fan. Um, I have... Uh, a lot of his original pages adorning my living room walls. So, um, and I recently was on the Avenging Hour podcast reviewing the issue of the Avengers that Gordon penciled. So uh, that was a lot of fun um, because I have one page from an Avengers comic and it is Gordon's art. Fantastic. Oh, sorry, Gordon, go ahead. I just said, thank you. (laughs) We love uh, we love our friends at the Avenging Hour as well. Of course, they've been on my show. I've been on theirs. Uh, and then lastly, Mr. Rob Salerno. Hi, Rob. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Um, I'm Rob Salerno. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I am uh, a writer and a journalist. Um, uh, I'm probably best known in fandom from uh, this podcast or uh, <laughs> from uh, my Iceman is a Homosexual blog, which um, I mostly did during the pandemic where I was uh, rereading all of Iceman's uh, appearances in chronological order and uh, trying to um, rationalize all of those appearances with uh, the later re- re- relevation- revelation that uh, he was in the closet the whole time. Uh, and it it makes a surprising amount of sense going uh, all the way back to the 1960s. Um, uh, and uh, I have absolutely no impulse control. And um, I, you know, totally uh, sympathize with uh, Daryl's plate with those like weigh the candies by yourself stations, because I um, not only can I not um, like grasp the concept of weight at all, um, whenever, especially when I'm in this country, because I'm from Canada and I'm used to the metric system and something is like, you know, it's 50 cents an ounce or whatever. I'll be like, I, first of all, I don't know what an ounce is. Um, I cannot do the math in my head. That's like, I think there's like 16 ounces in a pound for some reason. And then a pound is 450 grams. And I, I don't know. It None of it makes sense to me. I just end up filling a bag and it's like, oh, that'll be $35 worth of chocolate covered almonds. Like, uh Yes, that's exactly what I intended to buy. Um, I am a sucker for anything chocolate. Um, I think my absolute favorite thing, though, is uh, mini eggs. And I am so glad that they are no longer just an Easter thing. Um, that, you know, I, I bought a whole bunch of Thanksgiving mini eggs uh, around the holidays last year, and I'm still working my way through them. But um, yeah, as soon as I open a bag, I will just like down the whole thing. <laughs> Easter candy has really taken over the market for the entire year. First, Peeps did it, where they're like, you want a Halloween Peep? How about a Christmas Peep? And now it's just Peeps for every holiday. And Cadbury, with those mini eggs, they know yeah, where like, their bread is buttered. I like the Arbor Day Peeps myself. 
<laughs> yeah, those are just old Christmas ones, though. They just keep them until September, and they're like, here you go. Gross. <laughs> I, uh, I am Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the host of this show. I'm also a, a writer and a documentarian. I have uh, a severe dislike of most candies. A uh, sorry thing, but I hate saltwater taffy. Uh, I found myself liking certain candies when I was a kid, but as an adult, I, as I revisit them, I find them rather disgusting. Someone recently recently brought some Reese's Pieces over, and I swear I could have devoured an entire family size bag in one sitting when I was a kid. But now I'm like, oh, they're so waxy. I think the one I would probably would still enjoy is peanut butter M&Ms. Uh, that's maybe the one that I still have craving for. I have two children who both have certain candies they love and hate and like different textures. It, it kind of fascinates me. I have to tell one candy story really quickly, and then we'll jump into our interview. My mom was a first grade teacher, and I'm 16, and we're visiting my sister in Las Vegas. And we're in Vegas, but what my mom wants to do is go visit all of the dollar stores to see what kind of deals she can find. And at one dollar store, there was like old Halloween candy that was like four bags for a dollar, and she bought... I don't know, $50 worth of candy. Like it was so much. We had to go back to our place and take all of our clothing and everything out and leave it at my sister's and then stuff our suitcases full of candy so that we could get it back. And she's like, you'll get your clothes on the next trip. But then when wow. we got to the airport, the suitcases were all overweight and she had to pay $50 per suitcase to take it on the plane, which completely defeated the purpose. Uh, this is a legendary story in my family. It makes me- I nice. love your mother. <laughs> She's pretty fantastic. <laughs> I feel that might be why you don't like candy. You had too much. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think my palate is just more refined. Uh, the only person that hates candy more than me is my husband. Uh, okay, so we're going to start with uh, a weird connection between two of you that you don't know you have. Uh, Gordon Purcell and Rob Salerno have both been game show contestants. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually learned this this morning. I was reading your Wikipedia page. And I was so thrilled. Uh, would, sure. you to, would you both like to share your experiences as a game show contestants quickly? Uh, well, uh, I tried out for both these shows uh, here. So, well, actually, the first time I tried out for the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was in Chicago during St. Patrick's Day. And they uh, had the Green River and all that. So it was kind of cool. Uh, they put us into, a, my wife and I, into a contestant pool, but they never called. Then uh, they had an um, audition at a car lot in Apple Valley, I think it was. And so I went there, and I lucked out because I had a male uh, coordinator who liked that I drew comics, and he liked me. And he got me on the show pretty quickly. Uh, I found out that in both shows, I was on Jeopardy too, they tend to have a lot of, some people from town that they insist that they're not actors. So if you're an actor, you have to say another job. And if you live in New York or LA, they encourage you to say where you're born from. <laughs> but I was one, because I had an odd job, and I was f pretty friendly. Uh, they were happy with me. So uh, on Millionaire, I uh, got on and I won fifty grand, which was the high for that week. Uh, the daytime show was Meredith Vieira, and uh, it was harder 
because nighttime they had lots of budget, but they had a much stricter budget for the daytime thing. So personally, that was pretty good to get to 50 grand because we were, uh, my wife had, had lost her job, so she had to go get another job. So it really helped us a lot. On Jeopardy, uh, they called me to, there was a, con you had to try out online. And I, I guess I passed that pretty well. And so they had a thing downtown Minneapolis where they kind of had simulated shows. And, uh, and then I forgot about it because they didn't call for two years as opposed to a millionaire, which called me really fast. <laughs> so I thought it was out. So I had to even stopped watching the show. So I went to L.A., and they were really dedicated fans. They knew everything about Jeopardy, and I knew just a little bit about it. And unfortunately, they uh, called me in the first group. They filmed sh five shows a day. And um, I was one of the first people. And we went against a three-time champion. And so the woman with me, the other contestant, we kept pressing the button too early. And he knew exactly when to press the button. So he kind of got pretty far ahead of us. I mean, I did make it to the end. Uh, I think they, uh, I think I made six or eight thousand dollars, but the second place person only gets two thousand, the third place person only gets one thousand. And the winner gets all the money that he makes, he or she makes. Uh, but it was fun. I got to meet Alex Trebek and we talked to him a little bit and that was kind of fun. And then we sat there for while they were taping some of the other shows and Alex came and talked to the audience and told weird stories. He has like raccoons in his uh, gutters or something like that. But it was all quite an interesting day. Uh, does that match your experience, Rob? Uh, yeah, um, very much so. I mean, like I, I kind of, so I've been living in Los Angeles for seven years. And after I'd been here for about two years, one night I was at a, a bar with some friends and I, um, met, um, I, I met, uh, Louis Vertel, who's, uh, now somewhat more of a celebrity now, but, uh, I met him at this bar and I recognized him as a former Jeopardy contestant. And, uh, we didn't talk about Jeopardy at all, but I went home and on the ride home, I was like, yeah, you know, wait, I live in Los Angeles now. I could probably just like go on like that's a thing that can happen in this world i could go on jeopardy so i went to the website and was like how do i be a jeopardy contestant um and it turned out that the annual online test was the next day so it was like just total kismet um i took the test and i know like i have absolutely heard from other people that often like you wait for two years before you get a call but i got um, the response back uh, just a few months later asking me to come to an in-person audition. I went to that. Um, and then I got called two months later to to be on the show. And when you live in LA, you're sort of brought in as an alternate um, because they need to have some people there, like in case someone doesn't show up or in case like they need to have enough people so that um, they, they call in more people than they will have play. And then they use Angelinos as um, alternates that like, if we don't call you, you can come back tomorrow. But like, if we brought someone, if someone flew in from, you know, Vermont, they can't come back a week later, like, cause they haven't scheduled that. And it's, you know, so I was, I was brought in, um, I played the game and the, the thing with the buzzer is absolutely real. Like, I think, you know, nine times out of 10, all three people know the correct answer, but it's the buzzer timing. 
And if you watch my episode, you can see all through the first um, segment before the commercial, um, I am just like, I'm, I'm buzzing too early and just being like, like you, you look at my face and I have like, I, my friend who was sitting in the audience told me he thought that I was going to leap over the podium and punch Alex in the face. <laughs> and I swear I almost was. Uh, and then during the commercial break, one of the producers comes over and like taps me on the shoulders. Rob, we can see that you're very frustrated. Um, just take a breath. You need to wait for Alex to finish reading the question and then buzz. You, if you buzz too early, you get locked out. And they do explain all of this before the game. Yeah, and exactly um, right. During the commercial yeah. break, they talked to I and the other woman and told us when to press in and we were just but the other guy had won a bunch and so he was quite you have good the practice it. once you figure out the rhythm like once I did figure out the rhythm it was a lot easier to buzz in and then um I did end up uh ending the game uh with a runaway um I knocked out a seven-day champion um who was absolutely like just the nicest guy I wasn't like you know I was not looking forward to playing him um but uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, a great experience. And then I had to come back five days later for the, the next game. Cause I was on a Friday. Uh, so I was coming back for a Monday show. And by that point I had completely lost the rhythm. I couldn't figure <laughs> out the buzzer again. Um, and it was a super like crazy hard game. Um, I ended up in, in third place on the second game, but you know, it's the, the you win some, you lose some, and it was such a blast. So I had well, a great time. Daryl and I have both written books and you guys have been on game shows and we're all very smart. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I Not as smart been. as I used to be. <laughs> uh, now, Daryl and uh, Daryl and Gordon also have a connection. You guys are kind of in the same community or area, right? And uh, or, or at least ish. I understand you met at a convention recently. Uh, I'm always looking to feature uh, creators from different eras on my show. And Daryl's like, I just met Gordon Purcell. He's the super nicest guy. We should have him on. And uh, Gordon was willing, but that's that's kind of where we started today. Yeah, I, I met Daryl first. He contacted me. We went to the comic shop, the comic book college in St. Paul, Roseville. And then we met at the con a couple weeks later. Yeah. And I had originally met Gordon years ago when I moved back to Minnesota, probably like four years ago or so, at another local con. Right. Um, because Gordon is great for the local comic community and um, shows out and is one of our uh, favorite local creators that we have here. So um, it's really cool to see him out and about. And um, I know, Gordon, you're active when it comes to the new release Marvel movies, too. So you were just at your local theater for Guardians of the Galaxy and its that, release. Yeah, I uh, I made a, a poster for it of the entire Guardian group, and we were there Thursday night. I saw the movie, loved it. Uh, had a lot of fun uh, talking to people that night. It was really good. Um, I just saw Guardians. Uh, I, I do trials on my show, and I just finished writing up the trial of the High Evolutionary, which we're going to have this fall. And I saw Guardians the next day, and I ugly cried through about forty minutes of the film, but based on the animal treatment and the concept of like cruel gods, and it was it was really powerful. Go see it. Right. The only the only problem I have. But I don't have a major problem because I know movies are different than the comics. Is Adam Warlock is quite different than the one I grew up. <laughs> but I do admit, I think in the first Kirby things, he was more childlike. I think. Yeah, this but, one was very himbo. <laughs> yeah. By the time I was reading it, he was sort of like a, a little bit like a Christ figure, 
but he's more like a superhero. Right. And Pip, the troll, was with him and such. And I mean, it was a delightful Jim Starlin uh, version. But uh, I did like this actor, and I did like wh what they did. It's just that they used it more as a plot device. Sure. Uh, okay, so Gordon, whenever I'm getting ready to interview someone, I'll go over a lot of their work. And when I'm interviewing artists, I take time to really look through what they've done and notice things. And this is funny because Rob referenced your Wikipedia page, which I also read this morning. But the first thing it mentions almost is that you're incredible at capturing the likenesses of real people when you're drawing them in books. And this is something I noticed before I read the page. You've drawn a lot of work where there are real people playing these characters, and then they look like those people in your drawings. Uh, let's start that. And then I would love to hear some of your journey uh, as uh, like as you became a comic book professional and how that happened. Well, I will say about the uh, likenesses, uh, I grew up watching the syndicated Star Trek after school. And so I was a huge fan. and so. Um, I thought it was really important to try to make the characters look like the actors when they were at their best. So, like, uh, it was easy with Next Generation because at the time that was contemporary. But with Star Trek, the original cast, I just kind of made them a little bit thinner, the ones that had to be thinner, and uh, tried to make the flattering. I tried to do things like make sure the corridors looked right and the uh, panels in the uh, bridge look right. I really went through as much research as I could. Problem is when I started Star Trek and comics in general, there was no uh, internet. Well, or if there was, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it. So basically, <laughs> and they weren't running the show on local TV. So all I could do was look at some magazines and then have to kind of when I could find something, like if they reran a movie or something, I would try to sketch that. But it was a hard at first. But I got down to I got I figured out if you kind of block out the planes of their heads, that really helped a lot. So um, by the time I was doing, I'd say Next Generation the first time, I did some fill-ins and an annual. And I think by then I had figured it out. And one reason I think I did figure it out is we uh, had the advantage of going to the Star Trek Next Gen and Deep Space Nine sets in L.A. And uh, while we were outside, we were going to go see uh, Brent Spiner, who was dressed as Dr. Noonien Soong. So you can probably pick out which episode, fourth season, I think it was. Uh, and he had all the makeup on. But uh, Patrick Stewart came around, and he saw that we were the artists, and he was dressed... Oh, his shirt was cut down to there. It was all pressed nice. He had sunglasses. He whipped off the sunglasses. and really wanted to talk to us because we were the cartoon artists, and he knew that we were kind of important on how he looked. And he said, there's only one artist who's drawing me right. I have an egg-shaped head, and everyone else is drawing me like Lex Luthor with a round head. And, and it turned out that I was the one who was drawing him correctly. <laughs> and so they evidently sent my art to the other artists, were drawing it to make sure that they drew it with an egg-shaped head but i always thought okay okay it's nice that they notice this and some of the actors do notice that kind of stuff uh when uh this is a little more embarrassing but when x files was started an excellent artist named charlie allard 
drawing it, who became famous for Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan. Yes, and he's great. But Jillian uh, Anderson was on Conan O'Brien, and he showed her the comic, and she was not happy with it. So I was brought in to do likenesses better, and so that's why I did that for a few years. And uh, and Charlie went on to be greatly successful at what he was doing. Uh, and I did, you know, it was fun. It was fun to do something a little different. And at the time, it was a very hot show. I have very few file pages left in my collection. Uh, what was your next question? Well, a little bit just about how you became a comic book professional, but you kind of took it there uh, already. Uh, Daryl, I know you're particularly interested in uh, Gordon's early work. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah. So uh, um, for the listeners who don't know, DC had the Star Trek license for years and years and years. DC had it. Um, and that's where you can see Gordon's work on the original series cast and Next Generation. Um, I recommend finding it. And it's easy to find, too, when you're digging through long boxes at stores because DC put the credits for the artist on the cover. So you can see Purcell there and you know that it's going to be quality. But Once when it came to... Threw it up. <laughs> You know, they'll either put my name on the other one, somebody else's, or uh, someone else's on mine. So it, it's worth a bet when you're digging through a long box. I actually found one of your issues just yesterday at a local half price books that I needed for my run. So um, when it comes to Marvel, though, how did you get to Marvel? And um, for those assignments with uh, within Marvel Comics, how were they sort of distributed or solicited? Well, I'll, I'll go through the whole story. I uh, I went to college for uh, I wanted to be a comic artist, but I couldn't figure out how how you could do that. There was no program for that, so I tried to be a I thought an advertising artist. They didn't have a program for that, so I took journalism and studio arts, and I happened to take theater arts, and I found that theater arts actually helped the most because you get a script, you have to direct it, cast it costume it, set design, lighting, all that stuff. It was more similar in a lot of ways. So after I graduated college, I went to a comic convention locally. And some of the local pros uh, liked what I was doing. So one of them, Greg Guler, uh, asked me to do layouts on something called Sentinels of Justice from uh, Bill Black's Americomics. So I did that. That was my first independent i did a couple more independents including first comics uh they had uh programs at dc at first that were uh new artist programs so i got into two of those they both folded and then uh at one point they had something called the bonus books uh and which there was a free 16 page comic in the middle of a regular comic and uh, somebody dropped out. So I mean, like the second bonus book. It was in Flash and it was about Cap uh, Dr. Light and the Blue Boys. <laughs> so he's defeated by a bunch of kids, which became a point that Jeff Johns uh, used a lot. Um, so after that, they decided I was good at drawing faces. So I think I. Next, did a Spectre annual and then Star Trek. Now, by this point, I was going to some conventions and I met uh, uh, Fabian um, Nicienza, 
who who we've had I, on the show. I'm a huge fan as well. And he's really great. He's, he's great. Such a good guy. He's great. And he started looking for things for me to do at Marvel. And uh, and one day he called and said, "We need a fill in on Wonder Man." And so I did Wonder Man number twelve. I think was the first issue I did, which was great because it was very superhero-y. <laughs> and uh, the villain was this big thing that looked like the thing, you know, one of those. So I had to learn to draw something thick like that. So I bounced between Marvel and DC for a while. And then I think uh, there was a new editor at Star Trek. And what happens with new editors is they often want to bring their own people in. So I uh, finished Star Trek, that first run of Star Trek. I would come back <laughs> um, and worked for about four years at Marvel, doing things like uh, Mad Dog, Silver Sable, uh, Wonder Man, all these kind of things. Uh, we oh, given a what? What if that was a good one? Oh yeah, what, yeah. What if the Punisher had killed Spider Man? That was well liked in the office. I remember that. We've given a uh, Saber Silver Sable a lot of attention on my show. We I'm pretty good friends with Gregory Wright at this point. We've had him on a couple times, and he and I chat pretty constantly. Uh, who is wonderful? I love your okay. work on this title. Uh, I know this is one that you actually did a little bit more for at Marvel than others. Uh, I would love to hear about your work there, and also kind of how do you choose which projects you want to work on? Well, often uh, during that period, uh, most of us, if you got asked by an editor. Occasionally, there'd be something where there was a toss-up between a couple of jobs, and I had to pick a job. For example, I did one issue of Night Thrasher and Silver Sable, and it was during when Marvel was going to go through bankruptcy, and they asked me to take over Night Thrasher. I said, how long is that going to last? And it's not long. I said, I'd just rather say stay on Silver Sable. Um, same thing. Uh, Valiant asked me to do Sliders if you remember that sci-fi show. But I had two other jobs at the time. There was one time when my son was going to be born, and I did a, a Star Trek VI adaptation, a next-gen uh, Deep Space Nine crossover, and Silver Sable all at the same time. And the only thing I did was took one issue off of Silver Sable because we had a baby. <laughs> uh, that's a good reason. <laughs> I was really working around the clock, sending like three pages here, three pages there. This is back when you did it with FedEx. So it was, uh, um, there were times, I think uh, uh, an anchor, Andrew Peepoy, uh, suggested that they were looking for someone on Silver Sable. So I did draw an actual pinup of her, shooting guns with bullets down there. And Chad, the editor, uh, liked it a lot. Uh, am I messing up his name? His name is Anderson. I remember that. Craig? <laughs> uh, I think it's Craig Anderson. Craig Anderson, yes. Uh, so he had me. But I'm Chad Anderson. That was an easy mix-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm getting confused. Um, so we had a pretty happy relationship until Marvel went through the bankruptcy. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it because uh, um, so Stephen Butler was the first artist, and he was a very good artist, very Rometta and Kirby-like, very old school. I liked it. But by the time I was getting there, they had a lot of fill-ins. 
and I think Stephen might have gone on to Spider-Man or something like that. Sure. Um, so, and the fill-ins were inconsistent, let's say. So they had me start on 24, I think it was, and that was good. And so they just turned the book over to me. One of the fill-ins after me was Doug Benke's only Marvel job was on Silver Sable. Hmm. Everyone knows him probably from Batman and uh, he's doing Swamp Thing right now. Uh, great guy. Superman. He did Superman a lot. I even inked him on Superman. <laughs> Secretly. <laughs> but, now, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. Oh, no, no. Um, uh, and I think because I draw what I draw, which is more personal. And I was trying to draw a little more like that style at the time. So there are times where I've looked at it and Silver Sable's legs are very long because that was the style. I think that's from the image factory, but not quite as long as the image people. But I think because I drew faces, I like drawing that. I think Greg wrote more emotional. So uh, Sandman, who was a hero at the time, was kind of in an emotional relationship with Sable which was really nice. And uh, oh, she had the wild pack and they're all in uh, lots of different kinds of emotions with the, so it was kind of fun to draw that. So, also writer, he did things that were great that a lot of writers don't do. Like there was a whole thing set in the Aztec nations, you know, and it had a, a battlefield and all that. He went and did the research for me so I could actually draw everything accurately uh he was he was just great to work with because of things like that even though this was a marvel style so there's a little more of the plot and but he sent the that was nice it seems to me you're careful about what you choose and that you build real relationships with people as you work with them so you're going to pick people you want to work with and things you want to work on which is a great way to approach this business we've been talking a lot on my show uh most of my show has been about the 1960s stuff because we're kind of going chronologically in continuity but we've been examining x-men the hidden years in the early 2000s on my show recently mm. and i'm hearing from people that it was a pretty rough time for a lot of people to work there people were getting projects pulled away editors were changing a lot uh and uh this is like the bankruptcy era of the of the comics there was a lot happening at the company uh was that a, a pleasant experience for you and then we'll kind of transition that into our issue for today no, it wasn't. <laughs> I actually chose to go. They asked a holiday party in January. Uh, and so uh, I, they asked me if I wanted to go. So I went. I flew in and uh, I was expecting to have nothing but fun, fun, fun. Because all my other visits to Marvel and DC were quite charming. Um, they were trying to impress investors, I believe. So they had a pretty good soiree. You know, lots of different tequila bars, taco bars, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they invited everybody and had fired a whole bunch of them. So my editor on Silver Sable was one of the guys fired. It was taken over by Mark Grunewald, I think, the last three issues. Sure, yeah. Uh, and um, so most of the Marvel people, editors, chose to get as drunk and as full of food as possible. So it was quite a party. And they're all telling lots of secrets about everybody, about fist fights that would happen, about people bringing weapons to threaten people, lots of weird stories. It was quite a soiree. <laughs> it 
And I, I did not know what to make of it, but I knew that uh, uh, things were going down fast. <laughs> and that happened pretty much. They said if all titles had to sell, I think 40,000 to keep going. Sure. And, and I think Greg and I had raised Silver Sable up to 38 or 39,000. But it was just under the cut. They gave us credit for raising it, raising the sales in a difficult time. But, you know, what can you do? Um, and so the only other job I did for Marvel was this Fantastic Four job, which was a few years later with Bobby Chase, who made it through that cut. Mm. <laughs> he would get cut later. There was a wide amount of titles being published at the time. And there was a lot of nostalgia at the time, too. X-Men The Hidden Years, again, comes out of this era, as does Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine, which is a mouthful of a title. Uh, Jack Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's run on the Fantastic Four is one of the most historic in comics. It landed a really long time. And much like The Hidden Years is set right after the X-Men from their original volume, uh, this book is a 12-issue series that's set right after Fantastic Four number 100. Uh, so there's a lot of FF content. There's a lot of 60s-style heroes that are running through this book. This is also an era in comics where we got Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which we've talked about on my show a little bit. Uh, Gordon, tell me about how this project came together. Now, we're going to review issue three today, but you worked on issue five of this book. Uh, right. A huge collaborative <laughs> team. There's multiple writers and multiple artists on each issue. Well, at some point, um, I don't know if it was a commission or it was a piece in some magazine, but I drew something very Kirby-like. And so I liked doing it a lot. And so Bobby said, well, we might need some help on this because, uh, you know, every story had four five-page stories in it. So I drew two pages that looked really Kirby-esque with things with a huge machine holding it and she actually said these are hot which is the only time i've heard that with me and so she assigned me this issue and um it was great because a thing hulk battle and doom was at the end and um and i didn't know at the time but kurt busick uh script of mine and bruce tim inked it and it's one of the few pages i have here i, I have curious i'm always oh, amazed when i'm interviewing people and they're talking about their work and their work is right next to them it always makes me so happy i'm just gonna go to the hallway this is one of the few things i have uh actually hanging up can you see this oops oh my gosh what happened there oh we can still see you oh there oh, it is I yeah if you just turn it to the left a little can you see that? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's Bruce Timms inking. Probably the most valuable art job I have. Godzilla. <laughs> Here's Rob. Rob, Daryl, are you guys Fantastic Four fans? Um, I'm I'm as much a Fantastic Four fan as I am of anything else in the Marvel universe. Uh, it's nothing. It's not a book that's ever like particularly. Um, called out to me, but I am actually really enjoying the current run by Ryan North. And um, I forget the artist who's working on it right now, but uh, the art is really great on it. And the covers, I think the covers are by Alex Ross right now. It just, that leapt out to me on Marvel Unlimited when it uh, when it dropped a couple months ago. And um, 
that's been really fun to read. Yeah, I have to say, I started with Rich Buckler. So that would be, I don't know when. Uh, and then a friend gave me, he, we would go and read comics on top of the garage. And he had a lot of the Marvels. So I would read uh, his uh, FFs and X-Men and whatever else he had, Justice League. Yeah. So that was kind of, um, so I was familiar with it, but I didn't really, but geez, I was young <laughs> for one thing. Not that Rich Buck makes me, that makes me old too, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, he was drawing a lot like Kirby when he was doing the FF. I had read him because he was on Avengers for a while where he was drawing more like Neil Adams, I would say, or Rich Buckler. Um, so I liked him for that. And one of those early jobs, I think my second job was for Rich Buckler on an independent comic. So I guess I knew him a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Daryl, how about you? Are you an FF fan? Yes, I love the Fantastic Four. One of the first issues I ever got at um, a flea market was one of the issues from John Burns' run. Um, so that's why I have such an affinity for the team that has She-Hulk on it. Yeah. Um, but I'm really excited when I read this one, and I know we're jumping into it momentarily, that Crystal is here. I love Crystal. Um, she's... I feel an underutilized um, person in current comics, but she had a great moment in the nineties where she was the center of a big soap opera with Pietro and she's on the Avengers. I mean, she's done everything. What a superstar of a character. I think she was in the Avengers issue. I drew, if I remember. Yes. If I, what? if I was casting the real housewives of Marvel, Crystal would be my first choice for the, uh, the person in the house. Moondragon would be a close second. And then we'd go from there. <laughs> uh, so to have Madeline Pryor. I mean, come on. Oh, Madeline, the invisible woman. There's a yeah. whole, there's a whole thing. Uh, um, I, I just want to say, uh, I just looked it up, uh, cause I felt bad that I didn't remember the artist's name. It, uh, it's the current fantastic four artist is, uh, Ivan Coelho. Oh yes. Yeah. With uh, Ryan and- North. Yeah. yeah, and fantastic. Just fantastic art on it. Yes, actually, uh, they've had pretty good runs, not just uh, Burn, which in some ways is my favorite run, but they had uh, Simonson did it for a while. They had a, a good one with uh, Ryan Otley. They've had lots of good ones. Uh, yeah, my Pacheco, favorite. Ringo. Oh, those are great. Yeah. The Ringo ones, especially. Oh, A Brian so, Hitch but, uh, in the Mark Miller yeah. era. I have that, those two. Yeah. So he's, they've had a lot of good runs. My, my qualification is how do you draw a thing? Sure. As long as you draw it in the more charming orange thing and not just try to draw an ugly monster, then you're okay with me. I love the thing. He's a lot in this issue. <laughs> he's my favorite Marvel character. Oh, I love him so much. Uh, he's easily a, just a beloved character for me. But the, in this issue, he comes across a little bit like a child with ADHD who didn't take their meds, but also ate a lot of sugar. And sure. he, he's very, he's more encourageable, uh, encourageable than the beast in this issue, which is saying a lot. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Right. So Beast is my second favorite Marvel character. Oh, we love Beast too, except he's a war criminal right now in the comics. Yes, that's why I'm not reading those, because I'm not going to read him being bad. Understood. Uh, so today we're going to be reviewing Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine, number three. This is a book from April 2001. It is by a book of all male people working under one female editor, uh, Miss Bobby Chase, who I hear is just great to work for. Yes. Uh, the writers on this book are Eric Larson, Eric Stevenson, and Tom DeFalco. The pencilers, Eric Shanower, uh, Ron Friends, Tom Scioli, and Keith Giffen. The inkers, Paul Ryan, Bruce Tim, and Al Gordon. Uh, Eric Stevenson also does the colors here, and Richard Starking is on letters. There's, so there's a, a huge creative team, and it was moving from issue to issue. Uh, we have a cover here, and I don't know exactly where this is set in X-Men continuity, but it's clearly after Professor X is back uh, to life. So we're going to set it after X-Men number 66, somewhere in this kind of early uh, um, uh, X-Men the Hidden Years era of continuity for the characters. They are at the mansion, and uh, apparently they're keeping Sentinels in the basement for some reason. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go. But we have a beautiful cover. It's all done mostly in reds and golds, where the X-Men and the Fantastic Four are teaming up to fight a giant, very scary, inhuman-looking sentinel. We've explored the FF and the X-Men's relationship a few times on my show. One is a family. One is a group of misfits that declared themselves a family. One is famous. The other is hated. But at this era, in continuity especially, they are friends. They're getting along. Uh, we see the FF go visit the X-Men at their mansion because they need to team up, you know? Uh, so they've met a few times, and this is uh, when everybody's on pretty friendly terms with each other. Let me hear your thoughts on this cover as we get ready to open up the book. Well, Jay Lee drew it, but Bruce Tim inked it, so it's probably the least Jay Lee-looking cover I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it really looks like Bruce Tim. I will say this. Um, the first few issues, uh, Eric Larson, who masterminded all this, he would do uh, kind of a layout, like a sketch layout, like better than stick figures, but kind of a layout that you could follow if you wanted to. You could switch it if you wanted. Uh, and he picked a lot of artists who were good at doing, like uh, Ron Friends, who was very good at drawing like Busama or Kirby or whatever, Rometta. If he had Ditko, I remember him drawing Ditko, Spider-Man. Um, by the time fifth issue, I think he was starting having to work on Dragon, Savage Dragon and such. So we probably got a little less of a sketch, but they were pretty good, I thought. And so um, it was easy enough to follow. It was different because, of course, we didn't we had the plot, but no script. So we didn't know but exactly what everyone's going to say. I mean, you just had to leave room for word balloons and know that Dr. Doom talks a lot. <laughs> so you, that was basically the only thing we had to do. Um, okay. Do you want me to handle the first part? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the first uh, five pages of the book. Let's hear uh, your thoughts on it and tell us a little bit about what the plot is. 
This is an era very quickly where every issue was featuring Dr. Doom messing with the Fantastic Four. Uh, he's doing different things. There's different guest stars. You see the Inhumans and the Asgardians and the Submariner, and every issue seems to have kind of a different version, where at the very end of the series, Dr. Doom teams up with, uh, there's Galactus and Fin Fang Foom, and he gets defeated at the end. But it's kind of a long burn with the FF going all around while Doom's messing with them, and they don't know it's Doom. That's a, a quick setup here. Loving. Uh, for Kirby and such too, yeah, yeah, uh, and J and Stan Lee's work. Well, I had Eric Schenauer, uh drew this, who is very famous for doing uh, Wizard of Oz and the sequel books to those. So this was a different style for him. I think he did a good job. Uh, it's also he inked it himself too, so I think it's quite pretty. Um, yeah, they're setting up to that. Uh, they have to, a problem to handle, and Reed wants to go to the X-Men mansion to uh, pick up some robots. And then the last two pages are about Dr. Doom, who <laughs> says that one person, uh, one of his servants does something, and he tells him that, uh, request 100 lashes for your impudence. 100? Yes, I'm feeling particularly merciful today. <laughs> I will soon enact my ultimate revenge upon my most hated enemies. And then at the last, second last panel, there's a panel of, Doom walking, and he looks like he's walking like an Egyptian from the uh, bangle. <laughs> um, since this is all set up, and he seems to have cameras on the FF, so he seems to know exactly where they are and all that. Uh, Reed has got the beard growth going, because that's what happens when you're up all night. And uh, Crystal and Johnny want to be together a few minutes for themselves and thing is just hanging around too much johnny johnny's grumpy in this issue crystal's massaging his shoulders and she's like man you're all wires and knots and he's like hey get out of here man i'm trying to get some time with my girlfriend he's I'm gonna get some why is he tense <laughs> well he's about to he's about to go see Iceman, and i think they have a little thing for each other <laughs> well i had assumed it had something to do with the second issue but <laughs> but but maybe uh, Daryl, what are your thoughts there? Oh, I just want to point out that Doctor Doom does have the horn that we've seen in a popular meme, um, right. where it goes toot. Um, the one from Namor the Submariner. So he's wielding it in one of these panels in this section, which I, I think is fun because it's Doom. So of course he's going to gather whatever technology or tools he needs to enact his evil plan. And so is he going to get the Kraken to go? You never know. But yes, that was the second uh, issue starred Namor. So uh, he's in it. So that would make some sense. Maybe that's why Johnny's so tense. He wanted the horn. <laughs> the horn of Proteus is one of my favorite weird Marvel things. You blow it and a sea monster shows up. It makes me uh, happy every time it shows up. But doesn't Aquaman have that too? I'm sure there's a version of that in every superhero. <laughs> I'm sure He-Man has something like that too. Sure. I love, like this the sea monsters are all just kind of waiting on standby like and they, there must be a contingent of sea monsters near every shore just waiting for this horn to blow because like what if you know the ocean's huge like if you were blowing this in manhattan and the sea monster was like i mean first of all like is it going to hear it if the sea monster is in the pacific ocean then it's like oh fuck I have to swim all the way around South America because I cannot fit through the canal. And like dogs, they just wait by the window until you get called. 
At least that's what our dog does. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Rob, do you want to take us through the next section of the book? This is where we get the X-Men. The it, we, we start with the FF, of course. This is their book. But the X-Men are here, and they are a lot of fun. Yeah, so uh, the Fantastic Four uh, fly out to the X-Men mansion. Um, they're in the Fantastic Car, uh, and um, Angel flies out to greet them in costume uh, while you know Cyclops and Marvel Girl uh, wheel out Professor X. And they, of course, because this is a tribute to the Kirby era, Cyclops is in a full suit and tie, um, a a a hideous hunter green suit and tie. I just have to say, because that is, of course, the style of the time. Um, and uh, Iceman not out here to greet them. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, you know, Iceman and Human Torch are best friends. But over on the next page, that's the first thing Human Torch asks. He's like, "Hey, where can I find my buddy Iceman?" And uh, Angel uh, Cyclops is just like, "Oh, well, you know, he's in the danger room with Havoc and Polaris because you know." They've got that whole triangle thing going on that is still simmering under for the next six or so years um, <laughs> that, um, you know, just never really advances, never really goes anywhere. Um, uh, they don't actually make anything in this story about how uh, Iceman is still, like, you know, pretending to lust after Polaris, even though she has absolutely zero interest in him this entire uh, era interested. of comics also lorna is just there she is wallpaper in everyone's yes. <laughs> and so is havoc to a lesser degree but like in this era th this is like the fill-in era where in all of the x-men's guest appearances they're like yeah remember the classic x-men that you remember the five of them and then those other two that are they haven't yet built a personality, so we don't know what to do with them. They're just kind of there. Um, but it's a lot uh, of sorry, it's a lot of characters, and they're probably the least well known. Yeah, especially at this point. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, um, Mister Fantastic shows up, and he's like, "Yeah, so um, you know, I was hoping to like get that stuff from you. I'm not gonna like you know say exactly what it is because." I don't know who knows what who might be listening. Let's build up some tension, some plot tension for <laughs> no reason for a little bit while longer. Uh, and then Professor X is like, "Oh yeah, but you know what else? Uh, we also had a mysterious break in that I can't tell you much about until we go a little further into the story yet." But um, uh, yeah, someone mysteriously broke into the X Men mansion, and everyone is like really blasé about this. This is like uh, no big deal. We had a break in, whatever. It happens. <laughs> I mean, people attacking us at the mansion. It happens, like, you know, every day that ends in Y. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, after the thing uh, does a little bit of uh, muscle posing for a little while for no reason, um, they... Funny. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, it's funny. Yeah, no, of course. The, the thing, he's just constantly, like, talking about how, like sexy his body is that's that's a total thing thing to do which i i love it's one of those the things that is so endearing about the thing um but uh they go into the mansion and uh cyclops and angel take uh uh human torch and thing out to the danger room because you know the thing is like danger room pff, that's for babies we we like we're the Fantastic Four. We beat up shit for whatever. Sorry, I keep swearing. Um, <laughs> we're constantly breaking. I was born. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, 
they decide to take a bet on it while uh, uh, Xavier takes Mr. Fantastic out to see the mysterious thing that he came to grab. So we go into the danger room um, and uh, the thing is just finds it hilarious that, uh, you know, um, all they're seeing is apparently some machine that is hurling giant metal rods at Lorna who deflects them away with her magnetic powers and deflects them directly into Iceman, like just knocks him the, I was going to say a swear word again, but I'm going to just knocks him right out, um, breaks his slide and he's goes tumbling. Uh, the thing finds this hilarious. And, you know, I think honestly, objectively, this is a hilarious panel. Like what is she doing? Um, laughing so big too. Yeah. Um, by uh, I think Ron Friends, right? I believe so. Yeah, Thing Laughing in this panel might be my favorite in the whole book. Actually, it's pretty fun. And actually, yeah. I think Paul Ryan inked it. Was he the artist on EFF during that period? Uh, I, I in this era with Tom Defal- DeFalco, but I don't know exactly when this was released. Who was the penciler on the main book? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. He was for kind of a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's likely. He's this- very nice. He was a very. It might nice have been the um. Was this like the the Pacheco era, the Claremont and Pacheco when this book came out? I will look it up as you as you continue, Rob. <laughs> All right. Um. Okay. So, um, Angel and uh, Thing make a bet on uh, whether or not the Thing and the Human Torch will last ten minutes in the danger room. Um, and uh, Thing thinks this is uh, a hilarious, very easy bet. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, they bet for an evening's worth of pizza and beer, which <laughs> great. I, I don't think any of the X Men are old enough to drink in the United States at uh, at this point in continuity. Um, they're still the world's um, strangest teens, is, is I think the tagline on the X Men book at this point. Um, but uh, uh, well, I guess I, if this is in continuity in the early seventies then they are old enough to drink if they're over 18. Yes. Ah. Because, yeah. because we had not yet have had Congress um, put it to the state saying you need to re- raise your legal drinking age if you want these road funds. Yes. So, um, they could be, or this is their way to drink underage, is accept a right. bet from some adults who's, who are going to procure the cases of probably hams or something like that. <laughs> and per- perhaps they got uh, pop while the other one, while the thing got beer. Right. He handle it. He was in World War II. We forget. So to be- <laughs> this image of uh, whenever the human torch does like part of his body is flamed on, but the rest of him is human. I find it so amusing. <laughs> this image of him doing a thumbs up with fire uh, <laughs> yeah. cracks me up. Uh, so they enter the danger room. Rob, what happens next? Uh, so they enter the danger room and uh, Cyclops and uh, Angel are programming the danger room. Um, but uh, Havoc, Polaris, and Iceman decide to stay in and and be part of this test for whatever reason. Um, uh, and, you know, they're just like kind of trash talking each other. And I am so glad you assigned me this page. I think you did this on purpose. Um, I In my head, you did. Uh, because the one thing that stuck with me from this issue, and I have blogged about this. Whenever I'm assigning pages, it's very intentional, particularly when I know you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the one thing that stuck with me about this issue 
Um, when I did this blog, uh, when I blogged about this for Iceman is a Homosexual, is um, the final panel on page nine. Um, it is the first time we ever see Iceman with lips, and it is horrifying to me. I'm sorry. This image has just like stayed in my head. Um, it, it's weird to me. I like, I, we've never seen it before. And, and the like process that artists took to refine what Iceman looks like over decades. Uh, I think they finally figured out a way to draw him with like more human faces, face elements. But like, this is this the whole thing with the lips and the nostrils and everything it all just looks so wrong to me um but uh that's you know not really a, a plot element or whatever but this this image is just horrifying anyway moving along uh we get to we cut to um beast uh showing mr fantastic around the objects that he came to collect which were just a pair of sentinels that the x-men <laughs> have in their basement this so. is so this is so stupid <laughs> <laughs> and we there has never been an explanation for why the x-men have sentinels in their basement um or why they're lime green i mean i'm i'm assuming maybe the x-men painted them after they they um abducted these things from whatever i'm assuming this is from uh the the one of the last stories in the the well, 60s let me era. let me review this very quickly the x-men have only fought the sentinels two times at this point the first one is in the original x-men 14 to 16 uh, in which the Sentinels are defeated because they bring like a crystal that gives off a weird energy. And then the second is X-Men 57 through 59, where Larry Trask has them and Cyclops gets the Sentinels to use logic to convince them to fly into the sun. So I'm presuming these two Sentinels in particular are from some unknown adventure. Uh, they next show up in Avengers 102 through 104, which is a Roy Thomas story. And we'll get to that on my show. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm assuming I these are like sentinels that were defeated or broken before they could fly off into the sun. And these are like the wreckage that they just collected somehow. And they're like, okay, we're going to just collect them and study them and, and keep them in the basement. I think because they have blue faces, they're actually Smurfs. <laughs> that, or that. Yeah, that could be. I don't know, man. They 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 have these, uh, these sentinels in the basement that Beast has done a thorough inventory of he's taken them apart he's reassembled them uh he knows exactly what's inside them uh but did not think to uh look at them after they had the break-in because why would he um and and yet like instantly uh mr fantastic as soon as he looks at these sentinels he's like hey wait a minute uh inside this hidden panel somewhere that i couldn't see there's these two little nodes were they there before and of course, Beast is like, hmm, guess not. No, they weren't. I uh, I did a complete inventory, and this is not on my list. So here we go. Uh, and then, and, oh, good. I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. Yeah, and then what do they do? They press the button to activate them. They don't. They don't try to take out the addition that was not there because Beast is like, I'm quite meticulous. These these weren't here. I know for sure. Um, and so then they press the button to turn them on, and we cut away. So yes, this is it's where three Beast uh, presses the button. So evidently, he's not as cautious as Greed. I guess. Um, in the danger room, we see 
Thing, Iceman, Polaris, and Havoc, and Johnny Storm all having fun. They're basically just having a workout to settle this bet. And um, Bobby and Johnny are having a great time together. And um, it, it, they're bantering back and forth. Angel and Cyclops are in the control room at this time. And we get a great splash page where all of a sudden one of these Sentinels, we see the outcome of pressing that button and it's not great because <laughs> the Sentinel is activated and burst through the floor of the danger room. And we have and human torch. This, cool, this is a super cool art splash page, though. I actually really, really like this is. page. Though his um, face is purple now, not blue. <laughs> there's the, That's there's because he's turned the on. So you had to get some of that, some of the pneumatic fluid or uh, something I flowing through. Um, Johnny exclaims, holy Hannah, a giant sentinel bursting through the floor, which is very of the age where you're going to describe the action you're seeing on the page. So it's, <laughs> it, it's throwback scripting, um, in that regard. And uh, thing is all about this. Ben Grimm is like, finally something interesting. He's probably tired of the metal rods coming at him. So he's like, all right, I can mess this up and not fear about breaking it because if I break it, no one will care. Um, Cyclops, they even address it, is all of a sudden in his combat gear. So he changed almost instantly in that control booth with war. And he's like, whoop, I stripped off my green suit and here I am. I'm ready for action. And they start battling the Sentinels in the remains of this danger room because it's not contained solely there. And we well, cut Cyclops away. Cyclops is always wearing his uniform underneath his clothes. Yes, he, <laughs> he took off the tie and just stripped off the suit. He is ready to go. But we cut to uh, the girls' trip. So something that we uh, didn't touch on. So Crystal and Sue are off to go visit Franklin, who's in the care of Agatha Harkness right now. And, and one of my favorite uh, Marvel names, uh, at Whisper Hill. I love Whisper Hill. <laughs> So they're on their way in this cool car that Black Panther gave them. And it's like an open-top convertible. Uh, and they're like, this is so great. We get to go out there and see Franklin. And we called ahead to Agatha. She's expecting us. But then Lockjaw, being a very good boy, hops in and yanks Crystal away. He's like, you gotta go, lady. Boom. And Sue's just left alone to make the rest of the commute by herself. Uh, just a second. I'm going to I have to answer something for my wife. But I'll be back. Oh, yeah, you're fine. We'll keep going and, and uh, just rejoin us when you can. So uh, she's cruising along. We go back to the danger room. It's spilled out into the courtyard outside of the mansion. And um, uh, Reed is being like, wait a minute. You don't even bother, Ben. Don't try throwing this. It's not going to help any. Um, and then the Sentinels, they're out. They have programming that has been enacted, and they're going towards New York City. And this is where we get to see Peter Parker, Spider-Man. This book has everyone in it. You don't expect it from the cover. But um, Peter Parker, he is like, my spidey senses are truly tingling. And <laughs> if something's wrong, I am going to... Um, get my suit on and figure out what's happening. And he sees that um, they're sentinels. And he's like, wait, they're ignoring me. Like, I thought I would have to beat them up right now. But Thank I don't. Goodness. 
<laughs> and Daredevil senses that something's happening. He's like, there's something flying over me, but um, I can hear wind striking metal, so it must be robots. Um, so, I mean, it could have been several other things, um, but he decided for sure robots. Um, it couldn't be a missile, couldn't be an aircraft. And uh, then we see that shortly behind, like right behind the Sentinel feet, we have a fantastic car with um, Reed, Thing, Beast, and Cyclops in it, and Angel and Human Torch are flying behind it. And they're this like, This is a oh. really fun team up panel. Like the X really driving the fantastic car. Like, I love this panel, I think it's really great. Yeah, and I, I love that Beast is also just hanging on to the outside of the Fantastic Car. Like, no, he's a, they're in they're in the little ports. They're sidecars on each side, like of a the motorcycle sidecar on each side. So things yes. in one, Beast is in the other. Yes, yeah, so he's no, that's in, Cyclops. Beast is hanging on the side next to Mister Fantastic. They're in the actual. There are two seats within the main body of the Fantastic Car. The Beast so is driving to the right of Cyclops, and Thing is driving to the left of Mister Fantastic. So, oh, sorry, I'm on the next. I thought we were on the next page already. No, oh. not yet, not yet. That's where Chad oh, is yeah. going to then address how they have changed positions. So, uh, I, I should point out that the artist Tom uh, drew very Kirby-like stuff, like at Image, and he does a real Kirbyous uh, Spider-Man and Daredevil. Yes. And I believe the Doctor Strange, isn't he in this too? Where they yes, don't show he's, he's flying in literally on the next panel. <laughs> but they don't show his face. I wonder if it's because he was wearing the blue mask. The yeah, time. this is his blue mask era of comics. So their way around it is just not to show his head at all. Uh, Doctor Strange's blue mask look is my maybe my favorite Doctor Strange costume. It's very I think it's cool. Yeah, but... Uh, who knows? <laughs> so just the, the concept of how we got here is kind of silly, but just envision this as a Marvel fan. It's the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Daredevil and the X-Men. And now Doctor Strange is flying in and they're all fighting Sentinels in New York City, which is just a delightful, uh, like little Marvel team up moment. Uh, this is where, yeah, as Rob was saying, Beast climbs out of the Fantastic Car. They are all launching. Uh, Thing has a great moment where he kicks it in the head and yells, it's clobbering time, which you always want. Uh, Cyclops is blasting at them, but the Sentinels seem to be acting funny. They're kind of spinning in circles. There's a strategy here. And uh, Reed starts to worry they're being outmaneuvered. Uh, Iceman and, and Human Torch team up on one and they quote a Robert Frost poem, which is the, uh, some say the world will end in fire, others in ice. And then Beast is like, oh my gosh, you're using a literary illusion. I want to jump for joy. I'm so proud of you. The dialogue here is super fun. Uh, Thing, uh, Thing grabs another Sentinel and, and says, pucker up, playmate. Uh, but Spider-Man realizes the Sentinels are about to explode. So Doctor Doom has detonated them from far away. And uh, Doctor Strange protects everyone from the explosion with a shield of the Seraphim uh, powered by the Eternal Vashanti. And... Uh, <laughs> And the, the, everyone's like, what's happening? So then we cut back to the X-Mansion where uh, Professor X and Marvel Girl are being attacked by Colosso, who is a robot that Professor X designed in X-Men number 22 to train the X-Men. It only shows up like four times ever. Uh, X-Men 22, this issue, X-Men 94, and X-Men Annual 3. So this is a fun drawback to then. And they can only defeat it by combining their psychic powers. 
Uh, we go back to Latveria where Dr. Doom says, uh, you know, the Sentinels didn't destroy them, uh, but I will move on and, and discover other things. He also mentions that he had the secret plot to try to obtain Cerebro. And the idea of Dr. Doom with Cerebro is a wild idea. That's uh, that's a crazy X-Men story. Uh, and then he grabs a toy of Reed Richards and is like, ah, and he smashes it to pieces. The one thing I didn't talk about, I think, is almost the most interesting part of this whole issue. Mr. Fantastic had a plot to program Sentinels to guard the Baxter building while he and his family were off on a mission. That was the reason they went to the X-Mansion, so he could reprogram some Sentinels. Uh, this is clearly before Herbie was designed, but this is a terrible idea, Reed. Can you imagine the story where the Sentinels are in New York City just flying around the Baxter building to keep it protected? <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts as we kind of conclude our review here? Well, they did have a pattern. It's interesting to see the art because uh, like Keith Giffen did the last part and he was well known for doing Kirby-like things, but he's not quite as devoted to drawing everything exactly like Kirby. And I think Al Milgram kind of makes a little more Senate thing. The same with the previous artist. I think Bruce Tim inks him heavier to make him look like Joe Sinnott a little bit more. Um, uh, they did a lot. with. They didn't want breaking out of panels very much. I remember that because that wasn't what Kirby would do. Uh, so it does look a little more old fashioned. And then there's a lot of repeated motifs. Like you see the castle of doom and then there's these dead trees in front of them. Yeah. He had that in every year. It seemed like. Uh, doom is doom has a moment where he's like, I'm going to do things that are good for me. And if it's good for me, it's obviously good for humanity as well. Like this is a great character. There's a reason he's everyone's favorite villain. Uh, uh, Robin Daryl, what are your thoughts on uh, the issue? And what do you think uh, Dr. Doom would do with Cerebro? Um, I mean, I guess the obvious thing to do with Cerebro is, you know, use it to track down mutants that he can then enslave or do whatever else to maximize his own power or use it to locate and destroy mutants who might be, uh, uh, you know, obstacles for him. Um, there's, I mean, there's so many things you can do with, uh, with, with Cerebro. Uh, it's, it's a psychic amplifier. He could do anything. He could do so many things with it. Uh, there's a lot of nefarious, uh, plots that, that could be involved with that. I don't know what he'd do with Colosso. I don't, I, that is the thing that baffles me because <laughs> it's, it's just a big dumb robot. And if there's one thing that Dr. Doom has a lot of, it's big dumb robots. I and... mean, he's, he's the one that makes sense to me here. What I think his plot was is he snuck in, put the tech into everything, whatever. And then he had the Sentinels distracting everybody while he had Colosso that was going to go steal Cerebro, but it didn't work. That was kind of the, the vibe I got. He's the only one that made sense in this issue. <laughs> I see. Okay. I think that maybe he would use Cerebro to track down Magneto. Maybe he wants a best friend. And it, he thinks that Magneto, but I don't have his phone number or his address. Read, so. uh, read Supervillain Team Up if you want to see how it goes between Dr. Doom and Magneto. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like, uh, the thing that's that's I'm kind of stuck with is so he broke into the X Men mansion, and he put the 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 uh, control thing on the Sentinels. He put the control thing on Colosso, so that the Sentinels would be a distraction. Colosso would steal Cerebro. What if he was already in the mansion? Why didn't he just steal Cerebro? He decided he had better things to do. 
uh, this is very ADD doom. He's after something different in every uh, in every issue here. Let me cover the the subsequent follow up here. This issue or this series goes through number twelve. We do see the X Men very briefly at the start of number four. Uh, Thing is hungry, and he mentions he wants to stop at White Castle on the way home. Iceman creates a little ice slick underneath him, and Thing falls down, and then. Human Torch and Iceman are laughing so hard. And the thing says, I'll make you guys into hot dogs and snow cones if you're not careful. But Reed pulls thing back. And uh, Xavier promises to, quote, severely discipline Iceman for having played this prank. Uh, he also says, yeah, we know what Bobby's pranks are like. Trust me. He's like this all the time. And then uh, the Fantastic Four leave. And Xavier worries about the threats they're facing way farther in number 11 of the same series. Uh, Doctor Doom is, like, achieving, like, global power. And the original uh, six X-Men see on the news that he is dangerous. So they rush to New York City. And all the heroes here are just getting demolished by doom one punch at a time so there's literally just one or two or three panels of the x-men uh havoc included but lorna is not there of course uh and uh doom just basically knocks them down and later in the next issue the ff will defeat doom so we're not going to cover those other two issues on this show but there's a quick recap of what happens to the x-men in the rest of this series uh, as we are wrapping up, this has been really fun and just silly to talk about this wonderful issue that's honoring the old nonsense of the 60s and 70s uh, that's that's just so beloved. Uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on what it was like to visit this series after all these years? Well, I, I really enjoyed this, this series and a lot of it, I'd say 90% of it is because of uh, Eric Larson, who was a very cool guy very nice guy draws weird because he uses his left hand and he kind of he's you, you'd have to see him draw because it's very odd but he's real fast and he came up with most of the plotting he and eric stevenson and he did a lot of these layouts especially early on he draws some of the issues uh he deserves a lot of credit for this it's fun yeah i think it's a lot of fun it's a series you can jump in and just enjoy it, it you don't need to know what's going on outside of it. It's one of those series that you can really binge read quickly if you want to. It's a good, I have a few hours this evening. It's nice out. I'm going to go sit outside and enjoy some comics. It's that sort of vibe where you just have fun. I it's think it's the paperback of the whole thing, too. You, yeah, so there you is. Get that if you want it. It's classic, and it's it's a nice honorarium to what they were doing with the FF in the 60s. It's a fun revisit, and and it's worth every comic fan to go read the original Stan Lee, Jack Kirby run of FF. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you guys are saying. I just, like, it's it's a fun series. It is such a, like, it's a throwback. It's It's a fitting tribute to everything that the original series was. Um... Uh, I have I have read the the uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby era, and that's that is it, it's them at the peak of their powers. Just you know the the the, the so inventive, so creative, and um, so much like fun from panel to panel in every part of uh, of 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 that run. And this series is just like you can see, you can tell how much fun everyone uh, involved in this book is having with every element of it, with with just, you know, the panel-to-panel -panel action, the, like, now we get to draw a guest star, and now, like, you know, this silly thing has happened that is totally in the spirit of 
this project and and the original stuff it's it's uh, referencing i i think it's it's a lot of great fun oh yeah so we as we're, oh i'm sorry go ahead gordon oh i we all did have a lot of fun was, and i almost drew another segment later on but i think i was doing x files or something so i couldn't get to it but uh, it was great and bobby again wonderful editor I've heard Ran on to DC after that. Yeah, I've heard great things about Bobby Chase, really, truly. Helped set up their uh, young person's uh, books, which are very successful at DC. And of course, got laid off because Discovery has to lay off people left and right. Yeah. Uh, well, as we're wrapping up, we're going to put this episode out on May 29th. Where could people find each of you guys online if they would like to follow you? And is there anything you'd like to plug from your uh, your personal works coming out? Uh, Gordon, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing these days as an artist. So would you like to start us there? Sure. I'm doing a lot of different things. Right now I'm uh, finishing something called La Rosa Blanca for American Mythology, uh, who is a Western, a female Western character who goes and fights a uh, swamp witch. I'm also doing uh, Lady Arcane, for uh, Heroic, which follows up. I did a three-issue series of Black Enchantress, and this kind of follows that up for Heroic. And Black Enchantress is one of the most charming little comics you ever draw because she's kind of a uh, flirty, <laughs> you know, makes trouble. You know, she's kind of a fun character. I'm also doing design work for a uh, video group. I did some Red Sonia sketch cards. Did the Guardians poster? I have to do one for Flash next, and then, uh, and then a pinup for you. Fabulous! I can't wait. Uh, where can people follow if, follow you if they'd like to? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, but I barely ever post there. And the same with Twitter. I just have my names on them, so no one else takes the names. But occasionally I'll post. But Facebook, I see every day. So just under Gordon Purcell in any of those places. Yeah, I used to have a website, but. It was Comcast, so they got rid of it. <laughs> uh, and then, Daryl, do you want to go next? Sure. You can find my podcast regularly, the X-Factor Files podcast, where we are reviewing Peter David's X-Factor Investigations run. Um, and we are going to pause that for a little summer vacation as we review all of the 1993 Marvel annuals. So Gordon will come on to our show to talk about the Wonder Man annual that he penciled. Um, and what's special about those? It's a new character. Some of them are great. Some of them are flashes in the pan, um, or they are hopeful flashes in the pan. Um, and then I have a forthcoming book on Linda Ronstadt's albums and songs from 1969 to 1989 Offer. coming up this fall from Sonic Bond Publishing. Um, and I just signed my contract for my next book with them all about Stevie Nicks. So that one is coming out in 2024. I just bought a Ronstadt uh, concert in L.A., oh. uh, which is an older album. But I just I love her. I saw the documentary twice. One of the things I've seen twice. I just simply love her. Daryl and I have yeah. talked about Linda Rodstad on the show before. Everybody go listen to Blue Bayou for one of the prettiest songs you will ever I hear. The best example of a woman singing something so distinctly. Mm. And it's beautiful words. It's actually a, a very good song anyway. So Daryl, you have at least two buyers for your book already. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and we're we on... about that, uh, the, uh, what is it called? Nelson Riddle 
era. Yes, that's included I, in the book too. I love that era too. Yes, all uh, all the jazz standards that you can handle across three albums. Cool. Let's do. <laughs> and then Rob. Uh, yeah, um, you can find me uh, on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Rob Salerno, um, or you can find me at my website, therobsalerno.com. Um, and uh, I guess the only thing really to plug right now is um, my book of plays, Smashing Young Man, which I released uh, last year, is available now on Amazon. Um, and uh, links to that are uh, available on my website and all my social media. It's a collection of uh, four of my plays that I uh, wrote and produced and uh, uh, toured, um, you know, all uh, across Canada and uh, have been produced in uh, uh, the United States and Ireland as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been very uh, uh, proud of the response to the book so far. So um, yeah, check it out. You can also probably find it at your library. And if you can't, you can request it from your library. They, a lot of people don't know this, but if uh, your library doesn't have a book, you request it and they will, they will uh, get a copy for you. Usually. And I have both of your books on my shelf. I've read both. I think you're both great. Uh, and Gordon, I'm so excited for my Craven the Hunter. Uh, it's been so fun to get to know each of you. Thank you for spending this time with me today. Uh, this has uh, been a, just a chill, easy, lovely conversation, and, and I'll be smiling all evening. Uh, lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can follow the podcast on Graham Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Graham Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. Uh, the next episode released directly after this is going to be covering X-Men The Hidden Years numbers six and seven, featuring the incredible writers uh, Stephanie Williams and Steve Fox. And then uh, the next Patreon episode after this uh, is going to feature the character Adrian Frost with her creator, uh, Jay Ferber. And it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a crazy conversation. Uh, the best way you could support the show is by joining the show's Patreon and by sharing the show with others. Uh, thank you for your continued support. If you'd ever like to look for my original works as well, my memoir is called Game Mormon Dad. My graphic novel is called Mushroom Murders. You can find both on Amazon. The documentary I made is called Dog Valley, but that's a rougher watch because it's about a hate crime. So take care of yourself if you plan to uh, to look at that one. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Rob. And especially thank you, Gordon. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.